Did you ever think you would be on Wavemaker Conversations? No, I ever? didn't. I thought it would be, uh, it would take a, something in extremis to bring me here. <laughs> but I'm here. You're and, here? Uh, and I'm uh, up here in Nantucket. It's a nice place. It is a nice place. I don't remember. I, you know, I told you I spent 17 years at CNN. You spent all these years in, in cable news. Yeah. I do not remember the last slow news day. Do you? It seems to me 9-11 was the, was the open door, the opening door to news every day. And uh, I'm not so sure about that because when you step back from the news and you read it like I used to read the Atlantic Magazine and the Peace Corps and you take a little distance from it, it may not be as happening as it seems when you're working at it. But uh, the, the, certainly there's a hype to the news. Uh, to every story is a breaking story and everything is exciting. And um, I've been watching this election of 2022 and I've, there's a lot of twists and turns in it. I'm not sure they're all real yet, but um, a lot of optimism from Democrats. They think they can do better now than they were a few months ago uh, before all this legislative achievement. But then again, I don't know if the legislative achievement has anything like the impact of inflation uh, on people um, come November. I think inflation is still the big thrust of, of, of information people are getting. It's the event. As Harold McMillan used to say, events, my dear boy, events. And events, I think, are more important than words or, or legislative achievements. We'll see. And you said something in your book. I'm, I'm going to hold it up. This country, great memoir. I mean, just one great story after another. And there are life lessons from here, not just political lessons. And you said somewhere in here that the shape of the field determines the right. winner. Well, that, that's the shape. And, and now it's uh, shaping up between uh, Trump and uh, DeSantis. And for whatever reason, I've, I pose this with everyone, why has Trump allowed DeSantis to begin to catch up with him, to almost be his match? He's not his match yet. And we don't know how good DeSantis is on national television. When you have to stand next to Donald Trump, we saw what happened to Jeb Bush. We saw what happened to Marco Rubio. Competent politicians. He was able to schoolyard them, just bully them. And can DeSantis stand up to that? I don't know, because he hasn't been tested outside of Florida. We'll see. But clearly, uh, you know, the, my question is always, can a, can a guy like DeSantis compete in the uh, interesting states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Can he compete in Erie or, or in uh, Wilkesboro? Can he compete in those places that really turn the election? We don't know yet. So, but let me take a step back, because all those years I watched you on hard And by the way, I watch you. I, ethnicity is still a factor in politics. And I, I, I never know whether Mastriano is going to pull an upset in Pennsylvania. It would be an upset. But I'm not putting it past him. And I'm not putting up past DeSantis to be able to do I always thought Chris Christie had a, ch a great chance among the sort of the, where I grew up, the Knights of Columbus, Catholic, Catholics, Irish, Italian, Polish, that group of people who are more Trumpy right now. Among that group, I can see a, a, a Chris Christie, always will see Chris Christie as a potential candidate there, and uh, as a possible running mate with Trump. Uh, if Trump's going to run again, he'll run with. <clears throat> Probably a safer candidate, but you know, I, I, I would I would think about the former governor of South Carolina. So, I want to take you just one step back because we went to sleep last night. We woke up this morning. So many big stories. Okay, so we've got the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. 
We've got the continuing January 6th hearings. We've got, uh, oh my gosh, we could go through the whole list. Uh, what are some of the other big stories you're seeing right now? We've got the newly titled uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, well, that's a, a smart title. But this slew of stories right now, when you were in the newsroom, when you had your show, you had to decide, I had to decide when I was at CNN, what are the most, what's the most important story today? So today, just given this flow of stories, including, um, oh gosh, who just, including the new book out by Peter Baker, who says Trump asked uh, his chief of staff, Kelly, I want generals like Hitler had, who were loyal to, who are loyal to me as they were loyal to Hitler. But I, but I guess my question is, there's so many important stories that today, what is the most important story shaping that field? Well, I, look, I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I said it in a tweet yesterday. It was the um, failure of Donald Trump to admit he lost the election. And that has permeated everything that's happened since. All the people who mobbed the Capitol and <clears throat> did what they did were led to believe that he had won the election by him. No other source but him. That's a cult when your religion comes from one person. And, uh, and that's the scary thing. It shows that the Constitution never required losers to say, I lost. But the, in our lifetime, they have always done that. And this guy came before the American people and said, I didn't lose, I won. And, and as a result, half the people who follow him support that. And uh, actually, it's 51% of the Republican Party in one of the recent polls. And that's a dangerous thing, because if you can take 30-some percent of the people out of the electorate and say they're not willing to accept the fact we have fair elections, that's extraordinary. That's the, the great pride of America is that we've led the world in democracy. And here's the guy that has turned it upside down and make it, making us a joke. I think that's the Trump evil, everything else. He, everything, everybody, everything, anything else he did, this is what he surely did. We know this. Whatever he said in the back room during the couple hours of January 6th, the important thing is what he said to the country after the election. I won. And Hillary Clinton got up the next morning, went to the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York City and admitted defeat. And Adlai Stevenson did it. He won by 7 million votes with a much smaller electorate back in 1952. This was not a close election. This was 81 to 74 million votes. This was not close. And Trump's lied to the people. And by the way, this is a, a, a continual theme in your book, This Country, is the power of that 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 concession speech. Yeah. It's a big deal. Well, I grew up with uh, Truman. Actually, it was uh, Truman's victory over Tom Dewey was a bit before my time. But I did know all about Hadley Stevenson and how he quoted Lincoln and said, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of uh, what Lincoln said. He quoted a six-year-old boy who stubbed his toe in the dark and said, I'm too old to cry, but it hurts too much to laugh. And he basically, he said it about himself, but he said how terrible. Because I've once read that Ike said, if I knew I was going to run against so fine a man as Stevenson, I wouldn't have ran. I mean, there was tremendous respect for political leaders in those days. And um, certainly John McCain had it. And certainly Mitt Romney had it. And I've, I've watched both of them at the Al Smith dinner every year. When you sit there and watch them talk about each other, um, 
it's a pretty great country until Trump in this regard of, of ignoring the fact of who won. And now, by the way, his people are so driven by cults that for months he said, I've got people investigating in Hawaii about where he was born and how he was born in Kenya. Where, where Obama was born. Yeah. And then he just announced on one Friday, the usual, as you know, Friday nights when you dump the bad news. He just dumped the news. Oh, yeah, by the way, he was born here. It, it, just like that. He can do it just like that and correct something that he has been taught by Kellyanne or somebody told him, this is dying. This is not helping you. So you worked on the- And he admitted, in other words, he can correct a problem just like that. Suppose tomorrow he said, I, I lost the election. What is it? Uh, under oath? I don't know what he would say under oath. You can't make a guy say under oath what happened, but it would be interesting. They're going to ask him how much money he's got, and ask his kids how much he's, how much he's got. Maybe they have to ask him whether he won the election or not, but I, I'm being whimsical here because I don't know if you could ask that as a question. You've spent so many... How, how many years did you spend in politics? Fifteen. Fifteen. And during those fifteen... I mean, and then 15 in print, and then the rest in television. Right. And those 15, which are well documented in your book, I mean, you talk about, look, six years, you were the war lieutenant, as you described it, for Tip O'Neill, one of the most effective, greatest House speakers ever. And he was demonized by the other side, but you, you've written no, a book. I, I think he did all right. He, he, led at 60, he, he left office at 65%. I wouldn't call that a demonization. Fair enough, but you tell some great stories, and again, it almost seems like people almost get heartbroken when they hear these stories because, oh, I wish we could go back to a time when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan got together for the betterment of the country. Well, I mean, I, I, I do like one. That's true, and they did it on a lot of issues. Um, when Reagan was in a hospital with a bullet somewhere around here, and he had lost half his blood supply internally and... It was very rocky when he was shot that time by Hinckley. And uh, Tip went in to see him. Nancy Reagan and Jim Baker, the speaker, uh, the chief of staff, both decided it would be best for the opposition leader to see him first. He went in to see him, and he kissed him on the forehead, and they prayed the 23rd Psalm together, and it was pretty remarkable. And um, I think there was a, a level of uh, human connection there that went beyond politics. And uh, he, uh, he used to laugh at Reagan's jokes. He actually thought, he thought Reagan was the greatest uh, uh, orator of a written speech of anybody he'd ever seen. Uh, once you got it on paper, Reagan could deliver it. And you were a speechwriter. You were a speechwriter. Yeah, writer. I was a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. That was my main job for him. And, uh, and I flew on the plane with him. And, I mean, I was there. I, was, I keep trying to tell myself, you know, I used to be there. I mean, when you're actually on the plane and the plane's taking off at 45 degrees and you're actually typing on a Selectric 2, the president's next speech, that's interesting. That's really being there, to put it lightly. And you were, and one of the stories I love is how you got there because I didn't know until I read your book that you ran for Congress in your 20s yeah. in a Philadelphia district that was- Northeast Philly, yeah. Northeast Philly. 
And it was the Jewish crowd and the, and the Catholic crowd on different sides of the boulevard. <laughs> the people that were the Jewish voters were much more sophisticated, I must admit. They knew who they were voting for in the primary. I'd say, I'm running in the primary. And they'd say, I'm a Democrat. I said, no, no, I'm in a primary fight. You've got to vote for me. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I'll try to figure that out. It was just... The, votings were, the voting was very smart. And the guy ran against got into big trouble. He had to withdraw from politics by the next election. Eventually. Yeah. But, you, but you went and you campaigned on a very particular hook. I talked about money and politics and how money was corrupting everything. And uh, by the way, I didn't know at all. Do you think somebody could get traction running on the Chris Matthews platform? Well, you'd have to have some celebrity to begin with. You'd have to be pretty well known because you have to get people to know who you are. Um, you could do that. Um, I was going to say the Chris Matthews platform, which was, I'm not accepting any donations. Well, the, the, the way, well, to be honest about that, I didn't know anybody who would give me any money. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a, that was a nice way of uh, what's called, uh, what's the term for that? I think it was a clever political move of being honest about it. I'm not going to get any money, so I'm going to take credit for not taking any money. And I, and I financed the campaign on $1,500 for, you know, for some really good literature we put together. And uh, well, Joe Biden, when Joe Biden ran the first time, he was 29, he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 72. I just wrote a column about it. He, he basically wrote a, uh, his campaign developed a, uh, a New York Daily News style pamphlet. It looked like a New York Daily News. And on the front page it said, Joe Biden's making a big impact in the U.S. Senate and he hasn't even been elected yet. And each page had a picture of him with Scoop Jackson or Humphrey or one of those big senators with him talking to them in some very senatorial looking place with some literature on the right side. It was a beautiful piece of 250,000 copies of them because, you know, Delaware doesn't have a TV station. So Delaware was a suburb. All they had to do was deliver that door to door and they got elected. It was a great piece of work by him. And he won seven elections since then. Jack Kennedy was elected in 1952, a big Republican year. FDR was elected in 19, uh, governor of New York in uh, 28, the same year that the, the whole country was voting for, including New York, was voting for Hoover. So if you, if you show, if you shine in an election that everybody else is winning on the other side, watch that person. Watch the person who wins in the off year, whether it's FDR or it's Jack Kennedy or it's uh, Biden. And then you're going to see the future. That's why I'm counting. I'm hoping Tim Ryan's going to win in Ohio. I'm hoping he's going to be the star because a lot of people I know think he'd be the perfect candidate for president. Biden doesn't run. He acts like a working guy, Democrat, a working guy. That's what Democrats got. They can't run another sophisticated Ivy Leaguer. That, that, that's what the, the Santis is praying for, Right. That's the guy he wants to knock off. Just give me one of those new swells that thinks they're, they're better than everybody else. Everybody, I can't wait to run against that guy. Everybody has always looked to you for the crystal ball, right? And so now we've got a framework. Yeah, I think they've, if the Democrats run another Ivy Leaguer, I'm not knocking Ivy League. My kids, two of them went to Ivy League. It's that um, if, you, if, you're, if you're referring to people as deplorables, or you're talking about people like Obama did, they're clinging to their... <clears throat> To the to the their guns and their religion. You talk about people in that con contemptuous way. You're going to lose them. Why would anybody vote for a person that said I'm claiming I'm clinging to my religion and my I just went to church. What are you making fun of me for? I went to church and you're making fun of that. Or I go hunting in the hunting season. You're making fun of that. Who are you?
And that, that attitude about the Democrats, I think, drives most of the Trump vote. That's where it comes from. So Tim, they're, 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 so Tim Ryan's the man oh, who he's could. a working guy. He looks like a working guy. He's from Youngstown. He looks, the, he looks the part. But I don't know if he's going to win. He's running against J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance has got, he's a switcheroo from what I can tell. He, he wrote a book. It's he's an Ivy Leaguer. Yale Law oh, School. Thank you. And Howie, the other one from Kansas or Missouri. They're all like Josh Hawley. Yeah. Excuse me, they're frauds. Listen, here's the question. Because you and I spoke a couple of years ago, actually, you might not remember in Mitchell's bookstore, and, we, and I was telling you that man, you know, every time you say something on the air, it comes from a place of experience, right? Your lenses have been shaped by those 15 years on Capitol well, Hill. Look, I got three brothers that voted for Trump. And one of them switched to, to Buttigieg in the last election, and two stuck with him. One, one guy is pretty much a country club guy, and the other one's a gunman. But I know who they are. You know, you know when, somebody How do you says, talk? when somebody talks to me and says, I don't know any Trump people, I'd say, well, then don't talk to me. Because if you don't know any Trump people, what do you know? You have no knowledge. You don't have no understanding of why the country is divided between Trump and not Trump. Tell me, a beat. Tell me about your friends who did vote for Trump. Tell me, about, tell me about them. Tell me about your brothers and tell me well, about- Well, that one's a gun guy. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll go for the most pro-gun candidate. The other one's an Ivy League, not an Ivy League, he's a country club guy who is popular in his country club. And what that's about, I don't know. But I think that's something to How do you to. talk to them? Because you- I don't talk politics with them. That's it? No politics? No interest. Hmm. Because he's not like he could actually change his mind. Right. He thinks- the Democrats are all responsible for crime in the big cities. You can argue that. Uh, my, my wife, I can't take her to a Phillies game because it's too dangerous. Really? Is that dangerous? Is that dangerous at the stadium? I don't think so. But I mean, I mean it's real. It's real. But you, Chris Matthews, as the former speechwriter, if you had an audience of, of people like your brother... I would ask him how much of this is... Uh, of your antipathy towards the Democrats is about their um, superiority. How much of that's about their attitude and how much is it about their politics? And um, see, let me give you an example. Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Bobby Casey in Pennsylvania. Tell me the difference between their politics on issues and how the difference with Trump. You can't tell me. They're all for protecting all the entitlement programs. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid for, your, for Alzheimer's. Uh, they, for, uh, they don't want to touch that stuff. They're not like Jerry Ford or some old Republican who wants to cut programs. And they want to fight China over jobs. They're exactly the same person. And the reason they're the same person, because that's how the average person in the rural areas of Pennsylvania who doesn't, didn't get to go to college is looking at things. That's how they look at things. It's the Chinese taking away our jobs. There may be other issues, but I'm not going into some retraining program because I'm Ivy League or thinks I should be retrained. You get retrained, buddy. I'm not going. But it's blaming it more on trade, and I think it's a good argument. And, uh, but they're not, they're not going to differ. Trump goes into uh, Pennsylvania to Erie, Wilkesboro. And he argues the same things that the working class Democrats like, like uh, Bobby Casey and Sherrod Brown are arguing. Nobody ever points this out. They have the same politics. You know what struck me? Is it that is that they don't have, there's no some right wing Trumpism 
It's just Trump the cult. That's the problem. I don't even know if you might, you might have even done this session, but when Bernie Sanders went to West Virginia for a town hall meeting, people connected with him. Well, because they, uh, because I think uh, young people did. I, I, I don't know for sure about older people. I know young people like him because, like my son likes him because, you know, when all you do is owe money for student loans, your idea of capitalism is just indebtedness. It's not about developing wealth. Now, for all the high-tech people out there, the, the people making a ton of money <clears throat> in Silicon Valley, to them, capitalism is a way to make a lot of money fast. But to most people, it's a lot of fast way to owe a lot of money. <laughs> and that's the way they look at it. And they don't think of themselves in their 20s and 30s and 30s. They don't see any money coming their way. They don't see it. So let me ask you one, one more question about Paul. You've got to be a real hustler, by the way. To make a lot of money, yeah. you've got to be a hustler. Right. And not that many hustlers out there. It's a tough way. It's a tough world out there. At some point, I want to bring my son John in. in the, I actually do have a question. I, I can, can he ask a shout sure. a question out there? Yes. Yeah, so you, you talked a lot about um, the superiority complex and the Democratic Party being kind of a, a driving force pushing people into the Trump cult. So I, I was raised on Hardball and Morning Joe and MSNBC and CNN. And I guess since 2016, I, I've seen kind of a shift in all of these things uh, away from a more nonpartisan, I guess, style of news into a more superiority complex type of news in, in both sides of the media. And, I, I, and, and I, <clears throat> I've kind of seen that lead to a polarization in information. As, as well as a polarization in politics, you know, now people obviously only get their information from one side. Okay, first of all, let me just, when Democrats make fun of Republicans, what do they say? They say they're stupid. Republicans don't say that about Democrats. They say they're stupid. That's how they discern themselves. They, they, they point themselves out as a superior mind. They're stupid. Um, and what are I we, think there's a big what difference. Republic, I think there's, what a big difference. there's a big Well, they might say they're dishonest. Well, a lot of other things that go on, but they're promising something they can't deliver, mostly. Um, I think I think that you're right. There's a, there's a strong attitude on CNN, on uh, MSNBC, just like there's a strong attitude on Fox. You can see it in somebody's neck. They, they express themselves with indignation. Yeah. And uh, it's not like it was, the news. I mean, Cronkite kept his liberalism to himself, largely. He made an effort. He was a real liberal. I mean, he really was. He went to Bobby Kennedy and asked him to run. He asked Bobby Kennedy to run? Against, uh, against uh, Johnson. Now, he just was. I asked him afterwards when he was retired. I said, you're a liberal, right? He said, yeah, I'm a liberal. But he didn't sell it. But I don't know. There are people in our business that I was in, and they'll tell you people want to be, want to be told how to think. They'll say this to you. People want to be told how to think. <laughs> and we're going to tell them. We're going to tell you how to think. That's out there. Who says that? People in the business, in news business. Today. Well, they're not newsmen, but they're in the business. On, on where, where you came from at MSNBC? I heard CNN, it there. Or, and was, was there a shift It was normal. That? It was like people want to be told. They, they, they work all day at their jobs. They're school teachers, whatever they're doing. They're mailmen, whatever they're doing. When they come home from work, they don't have time to think through everything. They want to get some leadership. 
It seems new though. That wasn't really the tone on Hardball or on Morning Joe. Well, it wasn't me. <laughs> no, but I mean on, on Morning Joe. It's on... not Morning Joe either. One, one more question okay, from my son. I was going to ask, when's the last time you went to Africa? I, I want to go right now. We, we, we were in Botswana. Yes, sorry, go ahead. I, I was in Botswana last time, and uh, which is maybe the best run country uh, in Southern Africa. Uh, I just I want to go. I'd like to get some guy, because I think I need a guy with me. You do a couple-week trick of getting in a car and driving around South Africa. And I'd like to go Cape Town, Joburg, Pretoria. I'd like to see Durban, a little bit of uh, Zulu country. I'd like to see uh, <clears throat> Swaziland again. And uh, I'd just like to drive around and look at it. i just like to see it. I can't get anybody get it, my family to say, let's do it. But it's a great country. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary a little bit, but uh, I hitchhiked all the way through Africa. I mean, I, I, do, I did it back in the old days. And uh, This is when you were in the Peace Corps. I hitchhiked. Right look, look where I went. Well, it was 72, and I went from, uh, no, not 72, 70. And I went from Swaziland, which is down there, all the way up to Kilimanjaro. Did, did you ever With my push, thumb. <laughs> did you ever push any legislation or like, you know, for helping Africa based on what you saw there? I know you went to South Africa in 85, right? Well, the D triple, the, uh, what's it called? The CAAA Act, Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. You know, pushed that, obviously. I believed it as long as it was quick. As long as it was a quick kill of the spirit of the... Uh, uh, the whites that they'd have to make a change. What I didn't want is to drag it down, slowly drag it down to another bed, bed off country in Africa. The last thing you need in Africa is another bed off country. What position were you in when you were pushing back that bill? Chief of staff to tip. I have a question for you about chief of staff to tip. In that book, you have a fantastic anecdote. When he was interviewing you for that job, he asked you a question about himself. You remember it? He asked you about, about his strengths. Oh, he said, how am I doing? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And what am I doing wrong? Yeah. And what was the follow-up to that? Well, he said, tell me, just tell me. Just tell me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. What did you tell him? Do you remember? Well, I, it took a while. I, I waited over time to do it. and uh, No, I thought he was great. And I, I always thought he was a great believer in what he, he stood for, and he just needed to do uh, things that I knew I could do. My, my humor was more um, snappy. You know, I didn't, I didn't tell these long Irish stories to make them, Danny Thomas stories. I'd, I'd do quick, and it was just snapper, and he loved them. He would say, great, and he'd use it, or sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes he'd say, no, but that's not me. But he started to like my, my one or two, was one or two Snapper things. You remember any of your lines? Uh, Beverly Hills budget. <laughs> the Reagan's Beverly Hills budget. I love doing that one. Reagan would uh, walk a mile for a camera. Yes. It was just snap. It was just to push him back. It was just uh, to push Reagan back. Yeah. It didn't hurt anybody. It was fun. Yeah. Let me let me ask you something. I got to go back because you have so many life lessons. I got I had my son do a little research for me, and I got a couple of books that I want you to see. All right. And I just want you to look at these books. Okay. Tell me the impact it had on your life. Sure. Uh oh. Look at this. Look at this. Underneath the 
Secret. I didn't want you to see this. I wanted the authentic Secret thing. Oh, well, <laughs> I read this when I was a kid. This is, excuse me, I told this in my book. I, I was in the library, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Free Library, right that? And, um, and I bought a book like this. It was pictures. I don't, young adult. Read us the title just for people. And it's called Alexander the Great. And I wanted to read about the guy who was at 21. He was the greatest leader in the world. And it just, it was a great story. It had a very simple idea. He ran the world, the known world. You know. Did it have an impact on you? Well, I did have a sort of a notion of, uh, when I was very young, of leading a cavalry charge over Russia to defeat them, even though I knew that nuclear weapons made that. Uh, some of these, these, these battles were great. The battles between uh, the Macedonians and, and how they would let the... Uh, One of these, they let the people and their chariots, they would just open up their ranks and let the chariots run through them. And then they'd destroy the people in the back. In the back, they say, in the back, they killed everybody. And in other words, they wouldn't get anybody in front of the chariot. They'd just open up their ranks, let them ride right through them. And then in the back, they'd destroy these people. It's a horrible conclusion. But, uh, Is that a metaphor you ever see? That? No, that was one of the battles of, uh, you know, and... You ever see that play out on Canada? No, I, I think I think a lot of um, of uh, of war and um, attacking from a defensive position, where you see you assume a position that you're playing defense, because people always root for the defender. All that Reagan had to say to Jimmy Carter was, "There you go again," and he won the election. There you go again, Mr. President. And the people say, what was he talking about? I don't know, but it sounded like Carter was harping on him and Carter shouldn't have been doing it. And, and he looked like he was fighting to cling to office, as the Brits would say. And if, if you just get yourself in a position where you let the other side attack you and you are posed as defending yourself against an unfair attack, you will win. Whereas anytime you attack your opponent and it's obvious you are attacking them, people immediately take it to the side of the defendant. That's a fact. I do think. Alexander, Alexander, Alexander. We got them all here. Yeah. <laughs> Except I got to tell you, there are a lot of unfair attacks out there, and I don't know how they're playing out. Well, um, I mean, does that principle still hold? I think, I think, look, I think, look, I think, I think, if you put things in proportion, I think John Fetterman has put an ad campaign out this week where somebody, he said, you've just crossed the, the bridge, just like Dr. Oz. You've just come in here from New Jersey. It's a simple, unchallengeable fact that Oz is from New Jersey. And it worked, it, you know, just, okay, it's not the most important issue, but to a lot of Pennsylvanians it is. Who is this guy coming in from Jersey? We all know what down the shore means. We all grew up with the phrase, down the shore. You're going down the shore to Jersey. What's this guy do coming from there and running here? I think if you don't overdo it, I think you can, it's just funny. People laugh, and then they probably vote accordingly. But that kind of attack, uh, you know, I don't know how the abortion fight's going to go. I don't, I don't think it's as simple among Hispanic people, among older people. I think it's a little, it's, it's not, it's in the side of the, in, in most of the Northeast, and, the far west, it's probably going to be 
positive for Democrats in the suburbs. But I'm not sure. Um, it's more interesting. It's a tricky thing. It's about their daughters and freedom and options. As long as you keep it on. Biden, for example, doesn't say the word abortion. He says freedom and personal responsibility and all that. I, I think it's, he's very careful about it. But I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it may not be as big as issue as inflation. I think inflation is still a big one. Because when you're retired, no matter how much you have, you only have so much. That's the thing that people don't get to. You only have so much. And, it, and you know that every time there's inflation, that goes down. Every time. Every time it goes down. And there's no denying it. So if you're making, if you've got two million bucks in the bank, that's a lot of money. That's a lot. Well, that's going to be 180. <laughs> if it's 9%, it's coming down. And, and, and people are going to go, what is this guy doing with my travel money, my vacation money? What is Biden doing with my money? Uh, you got to go out and you got to punch back on that. And that's why I think they're going to be unlikely losers in this campaign. Unlikely ones. You can't predict them right now. Big mistake in thinking it's only the five or six who are in trouble. You'll see promise the morning after the election, people who lost. And some will win, you didn't think. But some are going to lose you. How did he lose or she lose? Because people just, they have to express their outrage about inflation. This is not, this is not Brazil. This is Germany when it comes to inflation. We hate inflation in America. We don't like it at all. Some countries are much loosey-goosey about it, but Latin America, for example, but not us. We'll see. I sure. saw with Carter. We lost 10 senators. You know, my father, the stand-up comic, he was, he was performing during that period of high inflation. I remember I was a kid, and he used to have a joke. He said, I pulled into a gas station. I asked for $10 worth. The guy said, why don't you take a whole gallon? And It's a good line. It's coming back. That's the kind of joke is to write for tip. Real it's snapper, a snapper like that. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a real problem. So last question. And you. it's a real problem for people that, talk about it, somebody has $2 million. What about the person who's lucky to have 10000 bucks in the bank if they're lucky? That's all they got. If they had that as a padding. Well, they own their house, which they have to keep. Can't sell it. That's what you need to live in. And uh, you get 1000 or 2000 a month in Social Security, and that's it. Got to make it on that. And uh, you have to go somewhere in a car. It's 120 bucks. So what do you to do? To fill the tank. If you're back in politics, because one man, one person does not control the economy. One person does not control the inflation rate. I'm telling you that, well, that's the problem is that the problem is that inflation is, uh, is a result of government spending to some extent. And the Democrats believed in something called the new economic policy, a new, new monetary policy. There was no new monetary policy. Krugman's wrong. The whole thing is wrong. The more money you spend, the more dollars will be chasing fewer goods and services, and the less the everything's going to cost. That's a fact. So some people would say Joe Manchin. But if you're spending more and more money in the federal government, in addition to uh, the first uh, two trillion for the. Uh, PPP, whatever it was, then there's another almost two billion for the infrastructure, and there's this other thing they're doing now. It's all adding up. And yet, I have to tell you, 400 billion, a lot of that is going to climate change, 
I mean, if we think inflation's bad, the climate, the stability of the climate. I know it's all good cause, but you know, well, the government, the government is spending money it doesn't have. So then, let me ask you just a couple of profiles, quick, quick responses. Joe Manchin, what's your take on him right now after everything that's transpired? Well, a friend of mine in the Congress, in the Senate, told me this is how it would end. He said what? <laughs> this is how it was going to end with him cutting a deal. That he will, st- he will hold out, hold out, hold out. Uh, other person, he, he's a Republican state, a very pro-Trump state by 40 points. He, he cannot become a Democrat per se. So he has to always be in transit, a transition game. He has to always be in negotiations. So he has to stretch it out, stretch it out. Even now you'll find a way of stretching it out uh, because he always has to be open to the other side. And uh, I talked to one time. I know, I know what you're up to. You're, you're playing Churchill here. You're defending your, your, your state, your constituency. That's it. You've got to defend West Virginia. And that's Cole. Cole voted, you know, he voted for Al Gore, West Virginia. It's hard, it's hard to believe. West Virginia, because of uh, poverty and the Depression, the Great Depression, it was, they were voting for Jack Kennedy and those people. That's all changed because of sneering liberalism, because of the attitude of people that are looking down on them. Every time you make fun of West Virginia, do you think they're going to become more likely to be Democrats? So You know, I, I got to say, this is the last question. The tagline that I use for Wavemaker Conversations is where, where curiosity meets hope. And I always hope that when I get into a conversation with somebody who knows more than I do about a subject, that I'm going to hear something that gives me some hope. Well, there really is really something I talked about earlier. And the fact is, you have to look at this explosion of votes we're going to have in November. Maybe young people won't vote. I think they won't. They think it'll be, they might. You say an explosion in the midterms. A lot of voting. But what you have to look for is the people who won against the, uh, the wave, who survived the wave, whether it's FDR in 32, or it's Kennedy in 52, or Joe Biden in 72. Each one of those guys were threatened by a wave, and they won. And um, they're the look for. So that's why I'm looking for winners this time. I want to look at, you know, Fetterman and, and Shapiro. I always thought Shapiro was great, by the way. He's very good with cleaning out the bad priests. He's very good at that. You know, we had a lot of priests he nailed. Uh, and the, uh, and uh, Tim Ryan. And I like to think that, I like the, you know, I like to see the good guys, good candidates, uh, survive this bad year. So your hope. Comes- We're going to find here is we, we may find ourselves in November looking at Joe Biden retiring, maybe, and Tim Ryan announcing for president. We, we, the Democratic Party cannot sit around and wait for the best leaders to come later. They need them probably now. So whoever they got who's good, They've got to put out front, like they did with Obama. they got to put out Jack Kennedy. You can't sit around and wait for 10, 20 years while the guy gets a lousy Senate record and everybody hates him. you got to run him. And uh, 
And it's interesting. If we can carry Ohio, we can carry the country. So your hope comes from the good guys winning. <laughs> Some of you acts like a Democrat. Looks like a Democrat. What do you think your brother, what do you think your two brothers would say? Well, that, that we won't get two. We'll get three. We'll get th my to the other two brothers. You, th you, think, you think Tim Ryan would, would get your brother? I think so, unless, yeah. I think he'll say some things they don't like, but they might say, you know, he's exactly the guy I've been waiting for. Uh, a, a Democrat who talks like a, a Hubert Humphrey, a Scoop Jackson, uh, one who actually seems like they represent the working people. And, uh, yeah. A corollary to that question. I said last question, but I, I need one more from you because... You work for so many fascinating people. Of all the people you work for, who was the who gave you the most hope? Well, different ways. I mean, I I, I was responding to uh, Barack Obama's rhetoric, and um, he is he was as cool as Sinatra. I mean it. He's that, cool. He's that cool. He's that cool. He's that cool. You said on air. I remember it was in your book, but I also remember it when he gave that. Was it a keynote address, a high-profile address? Mm -hmm. That two thousand four. And as soon as that speech was over, you went on MSNBC. Yeah, I did. I said you just heard for the first African American president, and that's when um, Mrs. Obama, Michelle, started calling her husband Mr. President. Is that right? Yeah, it's in her book. Chris Matthews. It's all thank, true. Thank you for thank uh, you. It's all true. <laughs> it's all true. I keep telling people it's all it's all true. And there, there is my mom. Yeah, Shelly. This is uh, this is uh, me. Yeah. There is me again. Yeah. My brother Jim. My brother Herb. Abe Lincoln. Now it goes from there to here, from Abe Lincoln to Barack Obama. Progress. Thank you.